Father, thank you for these words that we have sung and the scripture that we have read. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. If we're redeemed here this evening, Father, that's our story. Every corner, every path, mercy and goodness is after us and following us. And it is true because of Christ, because you have redeemed us in Christ. Father, may your goodness and mercy follow us even into this place and to this hour. We ask for your blessing upon this time as we speak about the subject of assurance. That you would be pleased again to fill this place and fill hearts and minds with the Spirit of God and that you might wait this time that we have together. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening. It's good to uh, have you all here this evening. Is anybody else cold? <laughs> My teeth are chattering. I'm not going to, maybe I could have you turn that up. Right here must be this, all the cold air is dumped right on you, so we'll Turn that up, and hopefully I won't chatter my teeth for, for you all. Well, we're, we're here doing a uh, study on assurance. And um, I think assurance is such an important topic, such an important subject for us to do. And I'm looking here, and I couldn't find my notes. That was going to be embarrassing. Assurance is such an important topic. I've been using as a kind of a guide, Don Whitney's book, How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian? Looks like several of them were uh, gotten off the bookshelf. There is one or two more out there. I'm only using it as a guide. I don't follow books real well, but I guess if I followed it real well, you wouldn't need me to be up here. Um, But I am using it as a guide to um, kind of pace how we go through this subject of assurance. And this is a very good book. I encourage you to get it. I'm sure we can order more. But we're talking about assurance. Can a person be sure that when they die, they'll go to heaven? Can they be sure of their salvation? I can't, frankly, think of a more important truth to know than that if you were to die, you would for certain go to heaven. I can't imagine what it would be like to live with uncertainty, to live with the reality that you don't know what would happen to you if you were to die. So I think this is an extremely important subject for us to, to look at. Last week, just briefly, we looked at what is an imperative in Scripture. It's a command in Scripture for us to pursue assurance, to be diligent to have our assurance. And we looked at three particular passages, 1 John 5:13, where John writes, I'm writing these things, I'm writing this letter to you, this book, so that you may know, we said the tense of that, is a clear, a decisive knowledge so that you may know that you have eternal life. Then we looked at 2 Peter 1.10. Peter said, be diligent. Literally, give yourself no rest. Strive. Be earnest to make certain your calling and election. Make certain. Be sure that God has indeed called you. Make certain that you are chosen. Significant passage. 
And then similarly, you have the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7 says, We earnestly desire each one of you to show the same diligence. That's the same word that Peter uses in 2 Peter 1.10. Show the same diligence to have full assurance of hope until the end. So the Scriptures command us to seek after this assurance, to pursue it, to be diligent, to give ourselves no rest until we do have it. That's incredibly important, and I think it's significant in its implications as well. I have three basic implications that I didn't touch on last week, but I want to to deal with these tonight. Implications of this exhortation, these imperatives to pursue, to seek after assurance. The first implication is very simple, that assurance must be available if God tells us to seek after it. And unfortunately, that is debated today in in the church. Many, not our church, hopefully, but in in Christendom, there are those who say, no, you cannot have assurance. Yet we have the command to seek assurance. These commands would be ludicrous. Clearly from these commands, God has made available assurance. And he's commanded us to seek after And he's moved the writers of Scripture to exhort us to do that. Seek after assurance. Be diligent that you are certain about your salvation. There's another implication with these exhortations. And again, I just point out the intensity of this word, be diligent. I think it's spudazo in the Greek. Give yourself no rest. I mean, be be diligent about this. Be serious about making your calling and election sure. The second implication I have is that assurance must not be automatic if we are told to be really intentional and earnest about having assurance. That means just because you come to Christ, you may not automatically receive assurance. Oh, I'm saved. And you are bidden, you are exhorted, seek after assurance. Pursue it. Don't go to bed until you get it kind of attitude. We're going to see later that um, some people tend to doubt more than other people. For, for some people, and, and I know this is the truth, for some people, they've had very few doubts about their salvation. I mean, they, they know they're saved. And many of those people that tend to have very few doubts about their sa- salvation are often saved later in life. They have lived in such darkness and such sin, and such oppression. And when Christ came into their life, He has made such a dramatic difference. They know they're saved. To argue about the assurance of their salvation would be to as much argue about their very existence. They're as sure of their salvation as they are about their very existence because Christ has made such a significant difference in their life. And if that's... You this morning, you may say, I don't know why we're going through assurance. Of course you have assurance. Well, praise the Lord if you have that assurance. That's a precious gift to have that assurance. But I I can guarantee you're going to come across people, maybe your own children, friends, other brothers and sisters in Christ, that aren't going to have the same assurance. They have different experiences and different backgrounds. And this doctrine is very important to, to understand. And so we're told to strive after it. The other 
implication, so we have assurance must be available. It must not always be automatic. The third implication is assurance may not always come easy. And this is hard for some people to understand. And this is a difficult place to be in. I've known a number of people. I've heard testimonies of people who are just plagued with constant doubts about their salvation. I had a seminary professor. He was sharing his own testimony that this was his testimony for years. He just, did I believe enough? Did I repent enough? Am I honest enough? Do I really believe? And it just goes on and on and on. And it almost was to drive him crazy. And he finally came to this place and this conviction. Lord, when I die, I will stand before you and I will tell you I believe in you and I believe in the cross. And if that's not enough, you can throw me out. But I believe that. And it wasn't until he came to that final conviction that he finally began to receive assurance. Two times we have in Scripture, give due diligence, be earnest about making your calling and election sure. That tells me that assurance will not always come easily for some people. Some people are going to struggle with this. They're going to have to work. It's a a work of assurance, and it may be hard. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 6. This was the last verse that we looked at. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. Assurance is not a matter to take lightly. It's not a matter to uh, just oh, give it over. Verse 11 says, we desire, and that's a very intense desire, the same word for covet and lust. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence. That's the word that Peter used. Earnestness, give yourself no rest so that you might realize the full assurance of hope until the end. But notice verse 12. In order that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We want you to be earnest in the pursuit of assurance so that you won't be sluggish. When I see the word sluggish, I think of a slug. When I was in Kansas, I never knew what a slug was. I don't think I ever saw a slug until we moved to Missouri. We have these slugs. Have you seen the slugs? These slimy blob of goo. They're just... They're just there. You'll notice, I guess the reason they call them slugs is because they don't move very fast. They're real slow. They're sluggish. The word means to be lazy, to be indifferent, to be slow. I want you, or we, the author says, we want you to be earnest in pursuing assurance so that you won't be lazy about it. So that you won't be a slug spiritually. So that you won't be indifferent about your soul. One of the reasons that we need to talk about assurance is because so often in the church people are lazy and sluggish about their eternal destiny and security. Yeah, I am. I am. We need to be 
intentional about this. Assurance, then, is a lot like godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul said, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It was a a big eye-opening moment for me when I realized that godliness wasn't going to come automatic. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. God doesn't just wave a wand and then, boom, you're godly. Wow, you are. There is a movement, and I got sucked up in it early in our married life, this this second blessing type movement, if you just surrender yourself enough, God will grant you this work of grace and you, you hardly ever sin. And I sought that. And I, I could never get it. I was waiting for this work of grace to, to tame this wicked man and it, it was always a struggle. And then I began to read Scripture. Discipline? Yourself for the purpose of God. You know what the word is? Gumnadzo. Go to the gym and work out for godliness. That's what the word is. It's going to take diligence to progress in godliness. Second Peter 1. This is the passage you might want to turn there. Second Peter 1. This is the one that really woke me up to. This was a blessed truth to me because I was beginning to think I just, I'll never be godly because I couldn't get this experience. I was reading a lot of these Keswick writers, may not be a name you're familiar with, but great men of God, Oswald Chambers. I love Oswald Chambers. And there's a whole group of songwriters that were involved in this Keswick movement where, you know, just give yourself over to God and surrender. And once you do that, he'll just fill you with his spirit and you will go to heights you've never experienced before. And, man, I was searching after that. But I read in Second Peter chapter 1. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's wonderful. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, here's here was the eye opening moment. Verse five. Now, because of this. For this very reason, apply all diligence in your faith and add or supply moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness. It's like, oh, my God, it's not going to be a wand. It's not going to be a magic moment because of these exceedingly precious promises where you will be able to partake of the divine nature For this very reason, give all diligence to add to your faith these virtues. Well, in many ways, it seems to me that assurance is much like godliness. Oftentimes, assurance is going to require work. It's going to require spiritual effort to come to a place of rest. Something like the author of Hebrews says, strive to enter the rest, the gospel rest. This is important because I think there's a great danger. There's a great danger when you talk about the doctrine of assurance when it results in spiritual sluggery. You become lazy, indifferent. I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I I, I believe that kind of lazy attitude towards 
a person's eternal destiny is one of the most dangerous attitudes that there could possibly be in the Christian life. I am a Christian. Of course I am. You're indifferent. There is no all-due deal. There's been no real self-examination. John Piper said, True assurance cannot neglect the painful work of self-examination. And again, this is going to depend in, in large part on a person's background, on their lifestyle. Again, for some, they're going to look at their life and they're going to see so much difference, so much transformation. It's not even a question. But it is a question for those many times who grow up in the church. For It's going to be a question for our young people that are here this morning that grow up in Christian homes. And they go to a Christian school or they're homeschooled or they're just around Christians all the time. They're basically nice people. It's going to be a question for them. And self-examination requires much more intense work when you are outwardly a pretty decent fellow or gal. It does require painful work. Well, when I look at Scripture and I see these exhortations to be diligent in the pursuit of assurance, I, can't, I just come away with an amazement at the Word of God at how timely it is, how relevant it is. Even to this day, the Word of God is living, it is accurate, and, and it, is, uh, it is alive. Last week, I shared with you that amazing statistic that Barna did. They asked the question, if, if you were to die today, you would not go to heaven. 99% of Americans surveyed disagreed with that statement. Which means only 1% believe they're lost, which means 99% of Americans have assurance. It's a striking figure. 99 out of 100 people disagree that when I die, I will not go to, or I will not go to heaven. No, I go to heaven. And you know, I know this is true. That statistic is not a lie. Just read the obituaries. Everybody goes to heaven. Go to a funeral. Everybody's in heaven. That's just the way we think. And when I see the Scriptures telling us, don't be lazy about this, don't be sluggish about this, I can't believe how relevant it is. Because the vast number of people who have assurance, it's pseudo-assurance. It's a false assurance. It's an indifference. It's a presumption. It's a laziness. And I've seen it exegeted in so many different ways. I've seen these pseudo-assurances explain their assurance in so many different ways. And they won't always come out and say, well, I'm so good, I'm going to go to heaven. That's not usually how assurance... Well, yeah, I'm, I'm next to perfect. No one does that. But it's a little comparative game. I'm not a murderer. I've never raped anyone. Hell is for murderers. It's for rapers. It's for... It's for it's for bad people. And I'm not a bad person. And I don't go there. You know what's amazing to me is this mindset must have been around since the beginning of the universe because Jesus confronted the same mindset. Look with me in Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. 
Many of you are familiar with this. The Pharisee and the publican. Verse 10, two men, Luke 18, verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer or a publican. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. That is one of the most paradoxical prayers ever recorded in Scripture. God, I thank you that I'm so good. That's what he says. I thank you. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a rapist. I'm faithful to my wife, relatively speaking. I'm a, I'm a decent person. God is okay with me. That's the very kind of indifference and presumption and laziness that the Bible warns against. When you examine false assurance that is so prevalent today, you will see this laziness, this sluggishness, this presumption that the Scriptures warn us against. You know, there's many of you probably haven't read Pilgrim's Progress. I saw we have copies out there. It's probably the old English. I would encourage you to read it. Make it a discipline to read through Pilgrim's Progress the rest of the year. you got, what, seven months? Make it a discipline to do it. But there is a great story in Pilgrim's Progress. It's, it's after Christian and Hopeful. They've crossed the river that signifies death. They've entered in Celestial City. But John Bunyan, he, he turns his attention now to ignorance. Ignorance knows that uh, Christian and Hopeful have passed on. But he doesn't want to go through the river the way Christian and, and Hopeful did. So he devises another way to cross the river. He finds a ferryman. And guess what the ferryman's name is? Vain Hope. And the ferryman takes him right across the river of death, all the way to the gates of the celestial city. And John Bunyan says it was at the gates of the celestial city that the king sent out his shining ones, and they bound ignorance hand and feet, and they cast him out. And this is this one line that Bunyan writes in this book. He says, Then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. Sobering. Which reminds me of Jesus when men and women will stand before him and say, Lord, Lord. And say, I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They had assurance. But they were assuredly wrong. This evening, in light of these exhortations, I want us to consider the subject of doubt. Doubt. The subject of doubt. How do you deal with doubt? On the surface, when you look at these exhortations, you, you, you say God tells us to seek earnestly assurance. There are a number of scriptures a person could look to that speaks of our eternal security in Christ. John 10 is a great chapter to read through. And when you read these passages, you look at the exhortations on the surface, you may say, well, doubt is bad. Doubt's no good. Doubt is, is, is an evil that you must put aside. And a lot of preaching does that. You know, don't doubt. There's even a group uh, of, of believers out there that say, 
if you doubt, if you don't really know for sure that you're a Christian and you're struggling with it, then you're not a Christian because you don't have faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says without or this, faith is the substance, the reality of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, there's no room in faith for doubt. So you can't be a Christian. That's very unfortunate. Because the fact is, there is a great deal of room for doubt in faith. One of my favorite examples in the gospel. It's just such a precious demonstration of Christ. It's in Mark chapter 9. You can read it. But it's about the man who has a son that's very sick. He's, he's a, he throws himself down. He has a spirit, evil spirit within him. He's mute. He can't talk. And the disciples can't heal him. And so finally this man comes to Jesus and he says, if you can, will you heal him? And Jesus, there's no, there's no punctuation in Greek, but the next phrase is, if you can, question, question, explanation. Do you mean if I have the ability to do this, if you can? And then he says, if you have faith, all things are possible. And then this, this guy's declaration is just so precious to me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's room for doubt. I I believe, Lord, but oh, it's such a puny. Help my unbelief, Lord. And I know a number of Christians know exactly that strange mixture of faith and doubt. Well, how do you deal with doubt? We're going to look at this subject more closely, examine it more thoroughly a little bit later, because it is such an important topic. And again, there's not a lot of stuff out there on doubt, except for oftentimes just that just tries to eliminate doubt, which is not always a good thing. But how do you deal with doubt? Let's examine the role of doubt in assurance. Tonight, my main thought, my main focus is this truth. But in many instances, doubt is a very necessary component to coming to full assurance. That doubt is on the map that points to assurance. You have to be on the path of doubt even before you can get to assurance. That it is a necessary component of assurance. Now, I don't mean that doubt is the end goal. I don't mean that God wants us all to be struggling and doubting and just keep us hanging till the very end. That's not what I mean. But doubt is part of the means to the goal of assurance. It's a very important concept. In many instances, and when I use the word instances, that sounds sterile. I'm talking about people. In many people, doubt is a work of grace. It's a work of God. They need the doubt. It's it's God dealing with them. And they start doubting. And it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Jeremiah, there's two times throughout the book of Jeremiah where God condemns the prophets 
of of Israel because he said they are trying to superficially heal the wound of my people by saying peace, peace, and there is no peace. I take that to mean God was wounding his people because he was angry at them trying to get their attention and the prophets were saying, peace, peace, God's at peace with you. Everything's fine. It's wonderful. You're good. You are saying peace, peace superficially. And there are many preachers that do the same thing. You're fine. You're fine. God is at work. You're a Christian. Don't tell me you're not. You bet you have eternal life. And they're saying peace, peace when they shouldn't be saying peace, peace. There are many, many people who I would say if you have had no doubt, you're in a serious place. You're in a bad way. I'm concerned for you. And there are other people who I would say, you're doubting? This is a great cause for joy because God is at work in your life. There are a number of you here tonight because God has made you doubt and has awoken you to your condition. God is at work and He's not going to leave you to die in your sins and so He must work in your life. I I want to just look briefly tonight at this crucial role of doubt. We're going to look at it later. But I want to make just two important points. The first is this. Doubt is necessary if you have to undo false assurance. Right? I mean, that's just... That's not a... You know, I don't have to make big bucks to come to that conclusion. I don't, I don't have to get, get a, a lot of degrees. But if you have a false sense of assurance that you're fine, the only way God is going to undo that false assurance is by making you doubt. And that's a good thing. That's a real good thing. If, if you are falsely assured and you are in the company of those people who are just planning on standing before Jesus, say, Lord, Lord, and He says, I don't I don't know you. But to spare you that, and He begins to stir in you doubt of false assurance, that is a work of grace. That is a work of God's Spirit. Doubt plays a crucial role, especially for those who grow up in church, who grow up in Christian families and Christian fellowships. Because again, there's not a lot of, you know, outwardly, there's not a lot of things that says, oh, look at the, look at the wonderful transformation in your life. I've gr- There's never a time where I can remember not believing in Jesus. Now, many of you think that's strange, but I have grown up believing in Jesus. I have grown up with wonderful Christian parents who have shepherded me. My earliest recollection is on the steps of Crestview Bible Church in the hall. That's as early as I remember. And I've been in church ever since. 
And I remember sitting in, in chapel services and hearing testimonies of people who had gross sin and drugs and being envious. Wow. Wished I could have that cool conversion experience. I didn't have that. What do I have? I'm just a nice guy. Is that what it is? Is that what Christianity is about? God graciously, wonderfully works in the life of His people. If they have false assurance just because they're growing up in church, just because they think they believe since they've been born, just because they have good Christian families, and He begins to stir up in them doubt so that they'll settle it for sure, so that they'll come to assurance. I remember when I baptized Allison Dole. She told me, this is, Tim, this is my fourth time to be baptized. Fourth time. And as we talked, she agreed. The first three, she wasn't baptized. She, was just, she just got wet. But she says, I know for sure I wasn't saved Any of those times. I know it. Praise God. She was brought to doubt those experiences. So doubt is necessary if if false assurance must be undone. There are probably people in this room that should be doubting and aren't. Well, that brings me to my second point, and we'll close with this second point. Since doubt is often a crucial element in undoing false assurance, my second point is doubt is a significant byproduct of the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me in closing to John 16, verse 8. John 16, verse 8. When I say that doubt is a significant byproduct of the Holy Spirit, that means there is a doubt that's not from the devil. There's a doubt that's not because of satanic oppression. It's not because of your weak flesh, but it's because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is exposing you and bringing you under conviction of sin and causing you to doubt and to spurn that and to turn it away. It's a dangerous thing to do. John 16, verse 8. Speaking of the Spirit, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. It takes the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict people that they don't believe. Isn't that amazing? But doesn't the statistic just prove that out? Ninety-nine percent of Americans would say they believe. I I believe. It takes the Holy Spirit to say, no, you don't. You don't know anything about believing. You don't know anything about salvation. And he begins to expose sin. It's like a light. And if that light isn't there, I'm, I'm decent. I'm fine. I'm not like... So and so, I've never done this. 
But when the light comes, when the Holy Spirit works, all of a sudden every imperfection comes face to face and you're disgusted with who you are and what you've done. And you say, a Christian can't be like that. It takes the Holy Spirit to do that. It exposes sin. When He exposes our sin, He destroys our self-righteousness. He erodes our pseudo-assurance. And we say, I'm not fine. I'm not good. I'm not secure. And that is a work of grace. See, that doubt is a wonderful thing. That's a good thing. And if we always talk about doubt and say, oh, it's bad, it's not always bad. And I've always, I'm so thankful the Lord has given me this understanding before He put me into the ministry because the last thing that I'm going to do in anybody's life is be the Holy Spirit and give you assurance of your salvation. Hey, you're, of course you're a Christian. That's not my job. I can take you to Scripture. But when the Holy Spirit works upon people, He rattles their assurance. He exposes their sin. And I'll tell you what, sometimes that exposure of our sin is a very painful ordeal. I remember when Justin Quimeras, when he came the first time, he'd tell you, when he came through here, he was the best dressed, most articulate, pseudo-assured man I think I'd ever met. He knew all the lingo. He'd been in church a long time and, I mean, talked about going to heaven. And and by his own testimony, God just kind of let him go. I mean, go. And he went to places he couldn't even imagine. You talk about rocking and destroying a self-righteousness and a false assurance. Listen to Justin Cromero's testimony. But you see, God wasn't content to leave him in his pseudo-assurance. And the way to break that pseudo-assurance was conviction of sin to expose him so that he might have true assurance. So doubt is necessary if the Spirit must undo false assurance. And such doubt then becomes a byproduct of the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. There are other elements of doubt that we're going to look at. We're going to look at doubt in the life of a genuine believer. But there may be a number of you that are struggling with doubt. You may be doubting your salvation. You know what I want to leave you with this evening? I want to leave you with how amazingly tender and patient Jesus is with doubters. Just read the Gospels and the life of the disciples. Oh, those men of little faith. And he was so tender with them, so patient with them. When the man came to him with his son, if you can, Lord, heal him. If I can. Do you know who you're talking to? If I can. I mean, he had every reason he could have reduced him to smoking embers. If I can, I'm the God of the universe. But in this brokenness, this man says, I do believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. And he did. He was gentle with him. Can't help but think of Thomas when we went through the Gospel of John. Obstinate, doubting Thomas. 
And Jesus searched him out. Okay, you're going to doubt? Okay, I'll come to you. Jesus is a tender Savior to doubting people. For the life of me, what I can't understand is why people who are clinging to false assurance are so reluctant to give up a false sense of assurance. Oh no, I I know I was saved when I was six. Don't tell me just because I've lived 17 years in in the gutter under the influence of alcohol and drugs and in flagrant immorality. Don't tell me I wasn't a Christian. I was just backslidden. I know I was saved. Man, I tell you what, I would say, I would much rather say, you know what, I was wrong. A saved man doesn't live like that. Good grief. I thought I tried Jesus and Jesus failed me. I never knew anything about the saving power of Jesus Christ. There's no way I was a Christian back then. And yet people cling to false assurance. I know I was a Christian. Give it up. Who cares? Do you know Christ now? That's all that you need. It doesn't matter what day or time. I know now. But boy, when I look back, it sure didn't look like I knew anything at all about Christ. But when those who are genuine doubters and struggling, Christ doesn't push away. That's what I want to impress upon you. Come to him. The message then is you who are doubting, come to Christ. Come come to him. Meet him in his word and see how he meets you. Because next week we're going to look at the basis of assurance. And the basis of assurance is Christ. So doubters... Come to Christ. I'm going to close. I said that how many times? I am closing. Jude 1. There is only one. Verse 22. This is one of those verses that I've been in the ministry 14 years. Been to seminary and Bible college. And I never knew this verse was in the Bible. I read this verse. I was just doing a study on doubt. And I came across this verse. I said, that, I never read that before. And I had. Jude 1.22, the ESV says, Have mercy on those who doubt. The King James, they kind of mistranslated because the word crino comes from the idea of judging and making a difference. And so it says, have mercy, make a difference. But ESV, New America Standard, all the others, I mean, I think they get the right nuance. Have mercy on those who are doubting. Why would you say that? Because that's the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's merciful to the doubters, to the sincere doubters. You know who he's not merciful to? To the false assurance. Isn't that remarkable? He's tender and compassionate towards the doubters. And he tells his church through Jude, be compassionate, be merciful to the doubters. Bid them to come to me. I'll give them rest. I close. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for... There's just so much in your word about this subject of assurance. And to one degree or another, as we talk about these topics, whether it's false assurance or doubt or assurance, to one degree or another, everyone in this room is going to be affected by the subject matter. And I just pray that you will accomplish your perfect will as we minister your word and try to put it together and make sense of it and and make it pointed to our own life. 
So, Father, bless this series, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.